I don't think that the economy is going to recover in 12 months or 18 months. In the last time we had inflation, you you were looking at that for decades. Maybe I'm in a bubble. Obviously, there's, but it doesn't feel like a recession. But there were products that could protect them. There were ways they could have protected those deposits. They chose not to. Yeah. This thing called the golden rule, which is that the, those who have the gold make the rules. In your humble opinion, should we be worried about future banks and credit unions failing? Like, are we going to see a lot more of that? Possibility that, that more would fail? Yes. I do. We are uh, in the midst of craziness going on. Uh, we, we're in a recession. Banks are failing. Interest rates are sky high. We met through a good friend of ours. He's more of a friend for you. And, and I just was blown away by your knowledge around interest rates, what you do for a living. And I said, man, if I could have you on this show and pick your brain as it relates to what's going on in banking and all that good stuff, it would be a dream come true. And I think you'll share a little bit of your story. You had to get a couple approval to come on the show. And I think we're in the clear, man, it is an honor to have you on. And I want to give you the ability to give a little bit of your background and all the fellow nerds will resonate to you like a magnet. Awesome. Yeah. Started not in finance at all. I joined the Marines right out of high school and went along with them. But getting out, realizing I needed something to propel my career a little bit further forward, I enrolled to get a MBA out of the University of Washington. Went through as I was getting one of those. I actually ended up working for a DOD think tank type type agency and did a lot of stats work with them, got into that. And then I finally broke out into the world of financial regulation. I know the sexiest of all places, but it worked out really well. I got my start there with the FDIC, got a federal commission from them, which is what you need to do to be able to operate at the journeyman level as a regulator. And I worked with most of the different regulatory agencies over the time. I'm actually not with the FDIC anymore. I'm with a different federal agency where I uh, look at interest rate risk, but no longer a field employee. I more look at things from an overarching perspective, but I'm glad to talk about my experience and just getting to watch what's happening recently. I know for an interest rate risk risk person, it's the Super Bowl of what's going on because everyone talks about interest rate risk. They say you never fail from interest rate risk and in banks and interest rate is something to talk about, but not really that big. And now we're getting to see if you didn't have those strategies to avoid the pain, there's a lot of it going around. Yep. Happy to talk about it. So this is what we'll do. If I ask you a question that you can't answer, just you can straight up just say, can't get into that. But I want to hear all things recession prediction. Yep. What in the world are we in right now? Yep. And then I would love to hear your thoughts about unpacking the bank failures and just, are we going to see more of that? Yep. And there's lots of other things. So I just want to let you riff. I know when we were in person, you shared some of your thoughts around recession. I thought it was fascinating and um, would love to hear you repeat some of your thoughts about what we're currently living through. Absolutely. Yeah, I think right now we're at a very unique time. It is unprecedented in the structural sense of that term. It's never happened before. The velocity of the rate movement that the Fed started jacking rakes up once they realized they had non-transitory inflation, which... A lot of people were arguing against the idea that it was transitory when they were reporting it early. They like to keep to that 2% baseline. They've been blowing through it. Uh, even recently, you see the market trying to respond positively to the fact that it's gone down a little bit, but it's still in excess of five. You notice that the financial media tends to promote whatever the number is going to be that says things are going to get better. So you saw nothing but core inflation. Oh, yeah, inflation's way high, but don't worry, core inflation's low. Core inflation in the most recent actually just ticked up again. And when everyone talked about, oh, yeah, but the other number went down a lot. So it's like they're picking and choosing whichever one's going to make the argument that the markets are going to continue the way markets are going to continue. But with rates as high as they are, 
so many of the key drivers of our economy are just on the sideline right now. You think of housing. People are talking about, oh, housing's going to come back. We're going to see all this adjustment. But it's people are not house price sensitive. They don't care how much the house costs. They care how much they have to pay per month in a mortgage for the most part. And with rates what they are today, the difference between a 2% and a 6% is astronomical or a 2 and a 7. You're talking about nearly doubling payments in some cases, depending on where you're at. So it's not inconsequential for those people on the ground. And you haven't seen the prices adjust to it. The market's really fighting the idea that it's not going to return to normal or that it is going to return to normal. They, they think, oh, yeah, it's just going to go back down. Everything's going to be in that 2% world again. We're going to have cheap free money. But it's really, on my estimation, I don't think it's going to work that way. You had the inflation, the decreasing inflation rate that we saw over the last 40 years was started by Paul Volcker. And he had to basically stop and restart the economy like an old computer to get the whole thing to set again. And it took 40 for that rate to finally get down into that zero range. And then we're just hitting the bottom. And it's like it has nowhere to go. But a lot of cheap money into a lot of kind of nebulous ideas, you know, whatever you think of various asset classes, obviously, a lot of them are brand new crypto, things like that. We don't really have a lot of good historical information for. It was really popping. Real estate prices going crazy, very reminiscent of 2008. Stock market going crazy, crazy, very reminiscent of 2001. So you had a lot of these things culminating all at once. And then all of a sudden, everyone who's been living rich off of growing values in their houses and their portfolios, been spending all this acting like they're rich. All of a sudden, those rates and all that credit they were using to do it just went through the roof. And people are finding a very unfavorable position to continue living that, that kind of inflated life they got used to. So I think we're going to see a lot more pain. I don't think that the economy is going to recover in 12 months or 18 months. The last time we had inflation, you were looking at that for decades. It was significant, enduring, and problematic for a really long time. So I think it's I think it's worth looking at and not taking a positive view because, or do take the positive view, but make sure you hedge yourself somewhere. And uh, there's not as many good places to hedge yourself in this economy. So and that's it. So let me unpack what you're saying. There's really two potential problems that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Increasing interest rates obviously is problematic for people in the short term. But then inflation, which is arguably what has happened the last couple of years. There's nothing that's that's also a problem. So it's like we're increasing interest rates, which you could say it's a problem. But if we didn't, we would even have a greater yeah. inflation problem. Is it? Am I like articulating the dumbbell effect of the two issues? Like inflation is not necessarily going to cause the quote unquote recession, will it? Well, or would interest rates... And, that's, and you're getting to the problem with the dual mandate at the Federal Reserve. They have a dual mandate, both to keep prices stable, which inflation, deflation, and then they also have it to keep unemployment low. So it's okay, you've got really high inflation. Okay, then you need to raise the rates to cool off the economy. What's that going to do to your inflate or to your unemployment? Yep. It's going to bring it up. So they have a dual mandate that's completely contradictory. To pull one, you have to pull yep. the other. And to some extent, most of what the academics have said about the inflation fight and raising interest rates is in many ways, it is designed to slow down the economy. It is designed to put people out of work. It is designed to take those high in the sky ideas that everyone was funding for so long and say, hey, we're going to pull this money back. We're going to start expecting a higher and higher return for these kind of things. And a lot of business models and plans that were put out there that said, hey, we only need to make this sliver margin to be able to show profitability. Now it's pretty substantially more. So you have a lot of projects getting housed, a lot of plans that were in process that are just getting tanked. But it always goes back to that dual mandate from the Federal Reserve. They want to keep they want to keep inflation down probably more so than anything else. You can be yep. a really good Federal Reserve chairman and yep. have high unemployment. You look at Paul Volcker, he's the star of all the Federal Reserve or Federal Reserve chairmen we've had, but he completely tanked the economy very intentionally. 
and but yeah. got inflation under control. And that's what makes for a star yeah. person. And I think Powell sees that. He sees that, hey, yeah. people are blaming me for the economy and they're going to blame me either for the economy or for inflation. But for his historic perspective, if he wants to come up not looking pretty terrible, like all the people before Volcker who ran us into that problem for decades, he's got to kill that inflation. And I think that's going to cause a lot more of that employment issues in the short run and a lot more pain for people from that perspective. And yeah. In your opinion, are we in a recession right now? Yes. Okay. Because it doesn't, is it Stuart doesn't say that it doesn't feel like, maybe I'm in a bubble. Obviously there's, but it doesn't feel like a recession. I think this is actually some place that you can, there's a lot of really good articles that have been coming out in the Wall Street Journal recently talking about deposits at large institutions and just seeing the massive outflow of them. So what that tells you is that people are having to spend down their savings. So I think a lot of people are saying, oh, okay, it's not a recession. It's not this, it's not that. But ultimately, functionally, what is a recession? A recession is where the economy gets bad enough that you have to take out your savings and start cutting back on life. Most people have said in the last year, they've started cutting back or changing the types of products and services they're buying. They're starting to spend down their savings that was accumulated pretty substantially during the COVID timeframe from all the stimulus. But if that's not the you know bread and butter of what a recession does to you, I don't know what is. Yeah. Now, okay. it depends on what position you are. Like you said, if you are a normal consumer, maybe inflation is bad for you. But if you hold a lot of debt, and a lot of fixed debt, inflation's great for you. So it depends on how you positioned yourself prior to this and where your position is at. But I think you're seeing a lot more white collar layoffs than blue collar. That's unusual. You see a lot of these tech companies that were basing a lot of valuations on forward earnings starting to lay off because they can't meet those same expectations at a higher level of return that's now expected. So I think it's a mixed bag. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is you are seeing some companies starting to lay off, but it still seems like there's so many sectors that there's job shortages. So maybe, again, with when you look at where AI is going and all that, you might have some people that just have to wake up and say, hey, maybe I should change the career that I'm headed towards. And so, yeah, that's just that's what makes this unique is this might be a recession that hit hurts different the different sector differently like and I think that's what you're saying and that's one of the reasons why we might see some of them some of the inflation tenuate come down a little bit in the coming yep. months is because you do have massive openings but it's mostly in like lower income like tourism leisure yep. retail things where yeah you can get a job anywhere and with the 15 20 dollars an hour but that 15 20 dollars an hour after a few different years of seven and eight percent inflation higher tax requirements, things like that, it really equates to what they were getting before. But you're not seeing the growth in the really high end of the market, and you're seeing a lot of layoffs in that white-collar space. So you're going to see the upper end shrinking and the lower end expanding, and the overall impact of of wages is not going to be as dramatic, but that's because there's more of a shift in the composition of where people are getting their wages from and the types of work that they're doing. And you saw that very similarly in 2010 when yep. they're saying, oh, look, Unemployment's coming way down. Everything's better again. And it was like, yes, but it's a bunch of people who used to be, you know, office workers making 50, 60 grand a year who are now working at Starbucks making 30. It's not exactly the same thing, even though that headline number for everyone and everywhere, inflation's very personal. It's not, you can't look at the economy and say, this is how it's going to treat me. You need to know your own position, your own balance sheet and understand what that's going to do to you because just trying to use those headline numbers is going to be very confusing not just regionally, but even in the household. My wife and I do different types of work. She's in commercial real estate. I'm in regulation. We're going to experience this very differently from that perspective. You know what? Our combined household, I know, yeah. but that's kind of how it goes. 
do you see there being future in interest rate increases and when do you think they're going to stop or when is the re- they're going to reverse and lower interest rates? Yeah, that's the real expensive question there. So I think I think they're still going to do another increase. I think that we've seen most of that. But I think that the other challenge is you have to see how the market's responding to the rate increases. Because ultimately, the Fed is moving rates to try to get the market to respond in a certain way. But if you're seeing that as they're raising these rates, the stock market keeps going up, uh, unemployment keeps staying stable or or even going down in some instances for prior readings, you're not going to get that effect that they want, which is, hey, we're trying to cool down the economy. They're still getting more money flushed into it. It depends how long the economy tries to fight the Fed. And I think a lot of people were conditioned over the course of most of my adult life where, oh, there was a problem. The good old Fed put, they'll drop rates to zero. And they'll bring it back up and drop rates to zero, drop rates to zero. But they had that option because there was no inflation. Now, if they drop those rates to zero, they're going to be foreign fuel on that inflation fire and they don't have that option. So I think a lot of people think, oh, it's like the you know, Japanese currency, you're not a real trader until you've lost money on the yen at some point. But I don't think I don't think we're going to start seeing the Fed slow down as much until we start seeing the economy respond to it the way the Fed wants them to, which is understanding that like, hey, we're taking away, I think, was it Greenspan who said we're taking away the punch bowl from the party? And that's essentially what this is, trying to cool everything down. But if it's not, they're just going to keep pushing. It's not going to stop. So help me understand this, because I feel like I'm maybe a little bit more advanced than the average person as it relates to money and the market. But I still don't fully understand the game plan. So they're trying to create a recession. And what's the end goal? Like, is that money going to get swallowed up? Like, it's not just going to go into the, a black hole. Like, that's going to be transferred somewhere. So what is, how does raising interest rates cause the inflation problem? If you could just break that down, actually for me, but I'm sure there's other Let's say your banks are mostly, typically banks and other financial institutions are the fuel for the economy. So if you have a good idea, you wanted to start this website, hire some people, do some things, you need to go in and get the capital for it. You need to go in and probably get a loan. The thing is, how does your business plan work if the loan is 8% versus the loan being 4%? And that's where they're slowing down the process. They're making people have to invest in higher return items. And the institutions are saying, hey, we have to pay out 3 and 4% on deposits now. We can't give you a 4% loan. Um, we've got to get an 8% loan to do that. And you have to figure out how in your business model that works. And some business models don't work that way. So you have certain segments of the population that aren't going to be able to start businesses. You're going to have certain expansions that, hey, if this expansion only costs us 3% and it's going to return 6 that's great. But if it's going to cost us 7% and return 6 we're not going to do it. So you're cutting back on a lot of the expansionary processes. And that's going to make it so that you're going to see less return on a lot of the businesses, other things. You're basically just going to deflate things down until the inflation accounts for that difference as far as like cost and things go. But where does the money, where does the money go? That's, it's like inflation. The money out. That's what you're trying to yeah. get. You're trying to get the Federal Reserve is trying to take all that excess liquidity they just dumped into the market. And yeah. they're trying to soak that back out because that's, in, in the words of Milton Freeman, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary condition. So you, yeah. you need to make sure that you're you don't have too many dollars chasing too few goods because then people just bid it up. That's what it is. And if the more of that you remove, the less people there are with the funds and the position to be able to bid on things. And that keeps the prices from being bid up. And that's what slows the inflation down. The bigger challenge with inflation is that it's very self-reinforcing. So you saw some really big contracts coming out. I think there was Caterpillar, some of the big UAE, United Auto Worker contracts in the Midwest that they were going back and forth and looking at some of their raises. And they're getting like baked into their next five or six or even longer terms in some cases, massive raises that kind of made sense with that inflationary position. But now 
if you're that car manufacturer, I have to be able to pay for this and I have to be able to produce cars that that make sense with this so this models. So they have to raise their prices incrementally. And that's where you see it. Mostly it's an it's inflation flows through incomes. And most of that for most people are wages. So that's where you're going to yeah. see those big changes. And as you see those things happening, the idea that, oh, it's just going to drop back down to nothing. Maybe yeah. now you have the Caterpillar factories are going to be pretty unprofitable if everything just stops tomorrow. Same with the yeah. car manufacturers. Same with all these other people that booked them in. I got a decent raise this year. Uh, maybe you gave your employees an awesome raise. I have no idea. But a lot of people were getting some decent money. And you've got to wait till that kind of cools out. And especially with multi-year contracts, that can bake in for years and years to come, which is why it's yeah. a sticky process once you start inflation and yeah. not as simplistic to stop as some of the financial media are making it out to say. Got it. Do you agree with the whole con- process of raising interest rates? Do you think that's the best approach right now if you were in charge? There's really, from the federal perspective, they the best option is going to be legislative. It's going to be setting a budget and figuring out why we're spending all this extra money. I think that we've got, it's close to 10% of our money is, or no, it wasn't even that. It was, yeah, maybe it was 10%. I don't recall. Of our fund goes just to paying off debt for the national debt. We've continued to use all these stimulus, all this money saying, oh, it doesn't matter. We had those modern monetary theory people who had these crackpot ideas about how inflation was never going to happen again, that you don't hear a lot from them anymore. But you had all these people saying, oh, this is going to be a problem, but I just don't think it's panned out. So I think yeah. outside of Congress and the president and all those people decided to get together and make a budget, the Federal Reserve really has one stick and it is playing with its rate. They did start this yeah. recent bank lending program that they have where they're lending par on government agency stuff, which I'm speaking out of both sides of their mouth to some extent because there's they're saying, hey, we want to shut this down and higher increase the cost of borrowing and stuff, but we're going to drop it to bottom basement prices for these particular institutions. So they're trying to fight, hey, yeah. we don't want to have a banking crisis. We also don't want to have a recession. We also don't have massive inflation. And they're trying to yeah. leave that as well as they can. But I think most most people that I've seen right lately in the financial markets have been arguing that the idea of a soft landing, the idea of this all coming in without some sort of recessionary process or something else that's yeah. going to be painful is depletingly low likelihood now, as opposed to people six months ago were saying, oh, yeah, we're going to get a soft landing. Even Powell is saying, I don't think there's going to be a soft landing on this. I don't think it's very realistic at this point. Yeah. So we'll now talk about inflation. And my, my definition of inflation is do- your dollars are getting less valuable. So one of the things that we teach is if your current lifestyle is $80,000 a year, 30 years from now, you need far more dollars just to maintain your $80,000 lifestyle because the idea of our dollars getting less and less valuable, their the buying power is just less. We, when you spoke at this conference that I was at, you talked about how people need to plan for inflation. And so what is your whole thesis or framework around how people can take something that at this point we can't change, yeah. inflation's a thing, how do we bake that in and how can we take that and use it as a force to help us rather than hurt us? Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's, I think it's oftentimes in wealth management for like consumer wealth management, like you and me, our personal lives, they talk about it and you see those financial calculators where like you save in 27 cents per hour for the next billion years and you have whatever it is, but they never account for inflation in that. They're like, oh, you're going to have $5 million when you're 65. If you start when you're 15, it's like, yeah, but what does $5 million mean at that point? And that's where inflation is addressing that. So I think a lot of people need to make sure that they're thinking about it when they're planning. They understand that, hey, if I make $100,000 this year, I shouldn't plan for $100,000 when I retire unless I'm not planning for any inflation or I'm 
anticipating spending a lot less money. Make that a calculation. Put that into your spreadsheet. Hopefully you have one. If you don't, if you're not, if you're budgeted without a spreadsheet, good luck. But put it in, figure it out. If you don't have an idea what inflation is going to be, that's what things like treasury curves are for. You can go in and say, hey, for this year, three years, five years, 10 years, Here's what the market thinks inflation is going to be. You can look at tips, uh, treasury. What would be a percentage that you would use if you just had to average for the next 20 years? And where we are right now, that's that's what's roiling the markets, though, is that no one really knows what it's going to be five years from now. Already with their estimates, we're going to be on their dot plot. We had it coming back down. If you looked at the federal stress tests for this last year, for the Dodd-Frank stress test they brought out after the big 2008 debacle, they accounted for inflation dropping back down again. But no one thinks that's going to happen right this second. So... Unless you talk to the real estate, some sort of real estate trade group, they all think inflation is going to be gone tomorrow because it helps their business. But aside from that, I think that you figure out whatever that number is, I would probably use somewhere between three, three and a half percent over a long term period. But then if it keeps going up to five for a few years, you need to adjust that. If you front load inflation on the front end and then lower it on the back end, it's still going to be much higher. It's not different than exponential growth anywhere else. So make a number you're comfortable with. But the important thing is, not so much what number did you guess it was this year, but then back testing. Look at your model next year. Did it work out the way that I thought it was? Was this number the reason why it didn't work out? Did my right. purchasing power really not work that way? Everyone's got a different basket of goods they consume. And depending on what yours is, it could be something wildly different. Pick a number, start somewhere reasonable. I use three and a half for my own uses. And then I go back the next year and say, okay, how much did it actually inflate? And then I adjust that number and then for my projections. Yep. I think the big call to action is bake it into whatever your plans are, because a lot of times we see a stagnant number. And my opinion is retirement should be called future cash flow plans. And if you think about it that way and reverse engineer it from a cash flow perspective, include inflation into that, and you'll be far ahead of majority of people because you're actually measuring the metric that actually matters versus the net worth or some stagnant number. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the net worth is useful, especially the higher net worth you get, because it can be very challenging tracking long-term cash flows and things like right. long-held real estate or art or coinage yep. or whatever it is you're playing with. But at the yep. same time, you should always be looking at an inflation-adjusted number because if you look at those same things, it's like these people complaining, well, my parents bought this house in 1983 for X amount of dollars. And they had this one car. and it's But then you don't adjust to, okay, let's look at lifestyle yep. inflation. They were living in a 900-square-foot place with one car that was probably old yeah, they bought the house super cheap, but it had an 18% interest rate or something absurdly high right. where they were paying much more equivalent from a cash flow perspective if you discount it back to what's a normal yeah. right now. But people don't look at that. They look at the headline number and say, oh, this is really important. This is the same reason that a lot of people went from feeling very rich to feeling very poor. It seems yeah. they want to move out of their house in this current environment because they find out that you right. know, they were very rich in a 2% world. In a 6% world or a 7% world, mortgages are well pricey and they're not quite as wealthy as they thought they were. I think a lot of that stuff is going to have to work itself out. Real estate's going to have to come back down. Cars shot up through a lot of issues, chips and all sorts of other things through COVID. Those are going to have to come down quite a bit. But I think in the meantime, you're going to have a lot of people who own assets that probably don't cash flow and aren't valued in an appropriate way for what they're trying to use them for. Rental real estate right now, very hard market to get into more so than other times because single family homes still have those high prices because they haven't adjusted for that mortgage cost. decisions. Yeah. yeah, I think we're just going to see a lot of stuff settle. And I think, I don't even remember who said it, but it said that when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. Yeah. And the tide has gone out with inflation. And now you're yep. seeing it liquidity, the cost of credit, the cost of a dollar, very much more expensive. 
And then you're going to yep. start seeing what we haven't even seen yet. And that's the the credit cycle, which is, okay, now there's all these people who maybe were smart and did prepare for higher inflation, or at least they hedged against it by getting an adjustable rate type product. Most of those, uh, even the banks typically only stress maybe 300 basis points, two, three, maybe four, but we're already past the four point. They haven't even stressed to yeah. see what they think customers would do with this kind of yeah. Under the How many people are on fixed versus variable? Is variable, is that still common? It got to in- be less common, smartly so. People made the rational choice when they realized 2%, like you can't get money like this. It doesn't make any sense. It wasn't a rational yeah. product to offer. It's like when you can buy a car for- You're like shorting the American dollar, yeah, knowing that it's going to get less valuable. Yeah. So they bought them up, but sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Can you repeat? How, what's the ratio between but, the variable um, arm? Depends on the type of institution and- whether or not a credit union or a bank. But I would say overall, you can go, you can look at call reports for any of them. It's public information. But I would say anywhere between 30% to 15%, depending on institutions. But I would say it's not uncommon to see a two to one ratio getting on an institution. And it, it depends on how they're done. But you have your five and ones that redo every year. And then you have others that don't reset for a certain period of time. Uh, you've got very different types of products out there. So it's hard to look at one and say they're not really apples to apples, even in that bucket, because some are always floating and adjust instantaneously and others reset at given intervals. Okay. So I'm going to ask you two questions around mortgages. So I would like you to first explain why a fixed mortgage, especially at a low rate, is a really good tool to have. And I want you to explain it in your language, because I try to say this all the time and I don't always, it doesn't always register with people. Like, a mortgage can be such an amazing tool yeah. for your personal wealth. That's step number one. Step number two is in today's interest rates, is would you are you shifting your advice around maybe doing a variable because of where interest rates are at? Or do you even believe that someone should lock in a fixed rate if they are going to buy a house? What would you do? So those are two separate questions around the mortgage conversation. Yeah. So I think, you know, regarding a mortgage, it's obvious that with inflation, especially with we're talking about specifically about house inflation in that case for real estate, if you buy a house and inflation was what it was, which is less than two, you still saw house prices going up. So house inflation was always a little bit higher than that. But it really went zany there for a little while. I live in the Seattle area. Prices have just been going astronomically higher. Property I bought as a rental for two forty less than a decade ago. I sold for five sixty, uh, and it's and it just bread and buttered all day long. These are basic houses, nothing special about them. Didn't make any giant changes. It's just real estate prices are going crazy. But if you're sitting on a house and just to use very simple numbers, you get it for two percent mortgage. And so you're paying 2% of that house every year, in addition to your mortgage costs or whatever the remaining principal balance is, but inflation is 10%. That means after one year, that house that was worth $100,000 is now worth 110, but you only had to pay for 2% of that financing. So you got the difference, the the spread between whatever you get it for as far as your rate and whatever the inflation rate is. So inflation rates, when they go really high, anyone who has a fixed rate loan or financing on any type of product it's typically going to be doing pretty well as long as that product is some sort of uh, asset and not some sort of liability that's going to decrease in value over time. So we're talking houses. I guess you could have types of cars that would be in that category, not most, but like classic cars and things like that, artwork, metals, everything else. But for real estate in particular, you could see it in the market very clearly. When I bought it for that rate, and I think at the time it was like three and some percent when I originally got it, maybe four, got it financed all the way down to two and a half. And then just sat on it. I got to make all that money, drag money out of it every year. And then when I eventually 1031 it, I got all the money that I ever lost on it 
all back. So it's you can make so much money, whatever the spread is, the bigger that spread, the higher inflation is, if that's your only source of debt, it's great for you. Now you've got to figure out what's the balance between that and how much more I have to pay for my, my daycare and food and all those other things right. I have to consume. But especially for higher wealth individuals who have a lot of option to put things in a fixed interest rate positions, you can make a lot of money just off that spread if you understand that it's coming. Yeah. As far as where the mix is right now for whether you go with a fixed versus a, a variable rate product, I think it really depends on whether or not you think inflation is going to be more enduring and what the structure of that product is. Because I think most people think of mortgages and they think of variable rate, they think it just goes up and it goes down. But usually they have a ceiling, often they have a floor, and you need to base that off of, okay, based off of me thinking it could go as high as this or as low as this, what are my cash flows on that? Does it make sense? I do a lot of that from investing in one to force for just investment purposes as opposed to my personal house. But I think it's important to think of your house in many ways as like an investment. And I say because obviously there are things I will do to my house. You know, I'll put on fancier cabinets and a new floor and my wife likes it if we get a window treatment and things like that. That if it was a rental, I'd be like, that's insane. I'm not doing that. But for most of us, I think that the house should be thought of as an asset like everything else. And if you are yeah. thoughtful about the way that you're investing into that and how much you're putting into that, how much you're paying down early or not paying down, yeah. what that means, your rate that you're actually playing, your real APR, as opposed to what's posted on that loan document, you'll understand that there's a lot of ways you can manipulate that number to get new things out of it. Got it. So I think that I don't think it's bad to start looking. And if you were looking at home, I would get pricing for both right now and see what the difference is, understand how quickly it's going to reprice. If you think interest rates going to fall in the next three or four years, but maybe not right away, it'd be a great product to get a variable rate. What do you think though? You're in the driver, like you know a lot more than the average person. Do you think? Yeah. Then Because the spreads are also drastically different. And that's the other thing about an economic tightening. For a long time, everyone, if you were a terrible customer who paid on time, mostly-ish, and you were a great customer yep. who had super solid financials and paid every time, you got, you basically got similar prices. There was a teeny little yep. difference, but it wasn't very much. Right now, that difference is a chasm. So much more so if you're a prime buyer, I think there's still space to get into something in a fixed position. If you can afford it, it does provide you the insurance of knowing exactly what your payment is. Financial certainty right. is its own form of insurance because you can plan around it. And a refinance. Obviously, you have closing costs and all that stuff. But if interest rates decrease a lot, you can always lock it in lower, but you're at least locking in your rent. Yes. And, and they say you don't want to refi unless you're going to stay in the house for another three to five years. But even then, I think a lot of the estimates and calculations they do on when it makes sense to go into a house versus not go into a house are based off of the mortgage rate period that we were in for such a long time. And now that the rates are much higher, the calculation's a little bit different as far as what you're going to do. So I think that the standard idea that mortgages were a seven-year life on average before people would get a new one or do something else probably isn't going to hold as well because you have a lot of people who have 2% mortgages in a 7% world and they don't want to move. They don't want to get out of that house. And a lot of people, I think it's going to be a little less tumultuous for real estate because it's not like 2008 where the prices dropped so much that you couldn't sell for what you had and you were underwater. But it's not that different when you're talking about a monthly budget and saying, yeah. hey, I need to move into this much higher rate. Can I afford that and still have this lifestyle that I'm accustomed to or I'm choosing to have? Yeah. I would say personally, for investments, I like fixed. Okay. The, if you get the return higher than the rent or the mortgage, then you know it's then it's a done deal. But if not, if it was personal, I would really consider if I was not a prime borrower, I would want to do the math, probably yeah. look more heavily towards a variable type. 
What can you explain what happened with the banks failing and what is there more risk there and There's, what institutions are too big to fail and not too big to fail? Yeah. So theoretically, no one's too big to fail. I'm trying to be careful about this one. So no one's too big to fail officially. But obviously, there was a big shift from after the SVB and the, the other failures we saw recently. You saw a significant shift to deposits. This is not from proprietary information. This is There's journal articles about this. There's all sorts of things. Yep. You saw a lot of shift into the very, very large institutions because of the premise that they're too big to fail. Now, I think from a consumer's perspective, in many ways, that shows a lack of sophistication for most consumers in that from your deposit perspective, your deposits are insured up to $250,000 per person per account type for banks. And it's a little bit different for credit unions. But still, even without thinking about it very well, someone who had a savings account and a checking account and an MA account and whatever, they could have a million dollars worth of cash sitting in an institution and it's all totally insured. There's other products out there like CDARs and things like that um, that allow you to have unlimited amounts of cash that are insured through reciprocal deposit structures. But the issue with SB was that they did not, their customers weren't taking advantage of that. There was a lot of reasons that, you know, IT companies (laughs) that were starting would go through, they would help them get funding and all these things. And part of that agreement was then they had to have their deposits on balance. So they had a lot of uninsured deposits. It was like 80 plus. Yeah, it was like 85% yeah, plus. Amount. Most institutions you look at, that's, that blows out banks out of the water. It, that's, yeah. that's unusually high. But then the other one that failed, same problem. And a lot of that was just these companies sleeping at the wheel thinking, oh, okay, I'm not going to worry about it because... I don't think that this is going to happen. Then they did go under. There were products that could protect them. There were ways they could have protected those deposits. They chose not to, yeah. um, but Got they it. were worried that the contagion from the fallout would have been so much that the FDIC chose to step in. Is, is this something that we have to worry about, though, in your humble opinion? Should we be worried about future banks and credit unions failing? Right. Are we going to see a lot more of that? Possibility that more would fail? Yes, I do. I think that you have, again, right now you have a you have an interest rate risk challenge. They're trying to figure out how they can be profitable with all these legacy loans. You got to remember two thirds of your book for that hypothetical institution we talked about are in fixed rate. So if you have a bunch of fixed rate loans that are sitting at three, three and a half, even 4% in a world where I can get a three month treasury bill at four and plus, then why would I have my deposits here? unless you're going to pay me that rate, for one. So you see the cost of funds going up pretty significantly. But to do that, they have to start putting out loans at higher rates, but there's less appetite because these are really high. So you're having a lot of institutions who are stuck in a position of, I've got 30-year loans in my books, but the cost of funding those loans is more than I get in return from the loans. So they become structurally unprofitable. Now there's ways you can work out of that over time. If they have a good capital position and they've thought about it, they have good contingency funding planning, all these other things, they should probably be okay. However, yeah. if they didn't, then there's a lot of room for, for challenge that we're already seeing those failures in a interest rate risk and liquidity risk world. You add credit risk into that, which is going to, what's going to happen after all those reset variable rate loans start having issues, after all those white collar jobs that have lost employment the last few months, they're not paying their houses, they're not paying their, yeah. their businesses, whatever it may be. You're going to see a lot more of credits fail. And then all of a sudden, their losses from the credits combined with the additional costs combined with the low structural profitability for the lock, you just have a kind of a recipe for a lot more challenge. Short of the rates dropping precipitously, there will be institutions that are challenged. And the thing with bank and any kind of failure in a healthy economy, it's healthy. There, there will be a certain amount of failures that yeah. have to happen in a, a healthy functioning economy. Because if you just try to save everyone at any cost, 
you end up with a lot of suboptimal change. But it seems like they almost said the quiet part out loud. Like they would bail out the people that were too big to fail, but the little guys, the little credit unions, the little banks, yeah. they wouldn't. Yeah. And that's where I was just like, hey, I wonder if there's a bigger agenda going on. I don't necessarily scene. think it's an agenda. I think it's a, and I can understand that concern um, in that it does seem disparate. Uh, the treatment of one is not the same as the other. And I think someone did ask the press secretary, we've seen an outflow from smaller institutions. Are you going to be protecting these ones? And the answer was no, this wasn't a systemic risk for us. Got it. So I think that you have to balance the fairness of the financial rule with the reality of, but if I let contagion go, what's it going to do? Yep. And which ones do I need to look at and focus on for that? Because ultimately, all the regulators yep. in the country combined, there's, I don't know, like 4,000 people who actually go in to every single type of financial yep. There's not that many. That doesn't yep. include states. I think states would add a lot to that number, and they do quite a bit as well. Um, but still, when I mean, you think about that compared to, that's less cops than there are in New York to manage right. all financial types of instruments and everything else around the country yep. and even around the world. You have some other more complex things that happened with the bailout of credit suites and some other issues that happened with other countries playing around with some rules of bankruptcy that put a lot of uncertainty yeah. into everyone, everything for everyone. And now you have, it's harder to find funding for banks right now because yeah. they chose to pay back when credit suites went under, they chose to pay back their, the equity position before they paid back some of the debt that they had. And that's not how bankruptcy is supposed to work. So now the rest of the yeah. world took notice and said, oh, we may not get our money, even though historically bankruptcy would support us getting a flow of this. So a lot yeah. of people are a little apprehensive. You tag that along with LIBORs going away, new financial regulation, an election cycle. There's a lot of weird stuff going on yeah. all at once that makes this very challenging. So for someone like you who is in the business of predicting recessions and all that good stuff, what is your predictions for 2023, 2024, obviously we're not holding you to anything. We're not, you're not giving financial and advice. Entirely, but... All of this is entirely my opinion exclusively as a private citizen. That's right. I think that I don't think inflation is going to go down as quick as they want it to. I think that we're going to have more enduring, at least moderate levels of inflation for at least the next two or three years at a minimum. I think that we're going to hit a recession, probably whatever their technical term they choose to, because they used to have a particular definition. They changed it. They tried to change it again. It's now whatever it is at the moment. But from the perspective of, will we see two consistent periods of economic of shrinkage in the actual economy, which is what I'll use as my definition, I think we'll probably have that by the end of the year. And I think that can endure for a while. I think it depends, though, if Congress gets into things and starts trying to legislate a fix to this, as opposed to putting it all on the Federal Reserve to do because ultimately the Federal Reserve doesn't have the tools all by themselves to fix the economy. You need to have rational people choosing to not spend money that we don't have because that eventually has to be printed from stuff. Yeah. And are we going to see high interest rates, people losing their jobs, people having to fire sell their homes? Are we going to see that? Because it feels like it hasn't happened quite yet, but it's once we take out all of our money, yeah. once we withdraw all of our savings and then we start losing our jobs. Yeah. Even if your interest rate's at 2 or 3%, usually if one person loses their job, you're at risk yeah. of not being able to afford your home. And you can't sell your home for nearly the price that you want to. Do you see that happening? I see. I probably see some pockets of that happening. I don't think it's going to be as national as we saw in 2008. I think because yeah. we have such regional differences about real estate values, jobs, 
I also think that you're seeing a lot more flexibility where people work versus where they used to have to work, not in the big cities, everything else, but up, all of a sudden you could get into these B-level cities that depopulated 30 years ago and you yeah. moved your Tennessees and your Ohio's and your Pennsylvania, all these places have these cute little towns that just like everyone left because there wasn't work. I can telework from there now. Maybe I can make it so that if things yeah. aren't moving up as quickly, I can adjust to that. But I do think there's going to be there's going to be additional, you know, layoffs. There's going to be additional people who lose work, and ultimately, you need to have that unemployment rate higher for a while to bring down that yeah. inflation number. So I think that yeah. you're going to experience some trouble. I also think more so. This is outside of our topic, but I think demographics are your biggest challenge for valuations in the near future. Boomers are retiring at an alarming rate, but you look at the Generation X and the millennials that are below them, they don't have nearly the same levels of wealth as their parents did, as the boomers did during that same age. But additional to that, they don't even have enough to replace what the boomers have. So the boomers are getting into a position where they're going to have to start liquidating assets. They're leaving the workforce. A lot of them are going to say, hey, this is a huge hassle for me. I don't want to do this. But they start trying to sell those assets, those equities, those stocks, those things like that, real estate, whatever it may be. And they're going to find, oh, I have to sell to a generation without as much money. And they're going to have to drop prices until they can find a buyer because there's just not as much money chasing it. It's it's a macro level, or I guess maybe a sub macro level of inflation deflation that's happening between generational conflicts. In addition to that, I see a lot more costs for obviously the entitlements going forward, what we're going to play around with those, how that's going to adjust. And now it's nine years away that Social Security is going to be estimated to cut 25%. That's nine years from now. And you think about how many millions and millions of people are on that, what that's going to do to the economy. There's a lot of stuff coming down the pipeline that's going to be really interesting, more from a demographics perspective than from just yep. the current recession. I think Harry Dent was the person that had this whole philosophy around the market, not just based on the S&P always going up, but just looking at the people saving money and then the people withdrawing money. And can we say, because the markets is essentially a Ponzi scheme, essentially. Like you mean yeah. people that continue to fund it's, into it's, it. It's so, but yeah, you hope someone's buying the next product. And if they're not, what do you sell? Yeah. I think inflation and stuff has put a little bit of ripples into that because obviously we've inflated certain things. But the idea is that is the people that hold the wealth, when they stop saving and investing and they start withdrawing, mm-hmm. will we as a generation be investing at a rate where it continues to grow. If you understand the markets are just supply and demand, it could be less on what's the perceived value of Microsoft and more about the pool of money and where is it going. So I hate to do this. We're running short on time. So I have one last question, unless you have an initial thought you want to say off. No, definitely listen to dense stuff. There's several other demographers I follow and have just watched over the years, but I think it's an incredibly powerful observation because I think that Especially for getting back to what I do, regulation, you see a lot of small institutions where the demographics of their deposit base is also a challenge. You're going to see less and less small institutions, less so because they're not doing well or there's issues with them or anything like that. And again, this is not proprietary information. This is something you look up on call reports. But just talking with people at conferences and things like that, they'll talk about, oh, yeah, I have a really old customer base. But every time one of these old people passes on, their kids just take the money and electronically transfer it out. The last time we saw a big deflationary cycle, which was pretty short and not that long ago we didn't this is 2001 ish time frame you didn't yeah. have you didn't have electronic banking you didn't have yeah. the ability to instantly transfer money you still had to go in and yeah. you were balancing a checkbook by hand it was a nightmare the time yeah. frame i don't know how people live through it but um you're not doing any of that anymore and i think that yeah. people don't understand how much the velocity of money has could have changed yeah. and we don't really know what that is now because we haven't had any reason to see big outflows 
in this way for quite some time. So it'll be really interesting. Yeah. But I think demography is the next 10 years. That's what I'm paying attention to more than the microcycle of recession yeah. and not. So I'm going to ask you a question that could take you 60 minutes to answer. I'm going to ask you to answer in 60 seconds, okay? okay? What you're giving your personal opinion. It's not just very, be very clear here, but knowing what you know, what are some, what advice would you give someone who's watching this or listening to this that want, like is a prime borrower, is in a good place, has a good job, making money, sitting on some cash, and they want to do the right thing. They want to take advantage knowing what you know. What are a couple things that they can do to take advantage of the unknown next 10 plus years? Okay. Short term, if you just wanted to dump some money some places, if you and a spouse structure it correctly, you could put up to $40,000 in I-bonds that are returning an incredibly high rate right now. Those are risk-free government government instruments that are super cheap, but are producing nearly 10% returns that are guaranteed. That That's an easy one. If you just want to dump money for safety purposes, I would say probably equity market. I don't know what it's going to do. No one knows what it's going to do. But if everyone's predicting a high likelihood of recession, there's a good chance the equity market's going to take a hit. That's pretty normal. I, I don't know if that's gold or something else, but I think if you can find fixed rate debt on a cash servicing business, whatever that is, go for it. Make sure you're underwriting it well. Make sure you're understanding what vacancy, if it was real estate, for instance, or what losses would be in other businesses types of things, but just evaluate that. And if you have the money to spend, there's going to be great buys. I think you might want to wait a little bit, continue to build that cash buffer up, and then look and see, okay, now as the recession is hitting and you are seeing these losses... You know, as banks take in those foreclosed on properties, they have to hold that stuff and they often sell them at pretty favorable prices if you're ready and willing to buy at that point. So maybe look for there for some good options. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, all VA, all those have programs where you can buy their foreclosed properties online, a lower cost money down. That's not a bad option. If again, if you're looking at real estate, but again, I don't think there's ever not somewhere to make money. You just need to understand the risks and you need to model out the risks and not about what each individual thing or product or instrument or property or whatever you buy does. How it's how does it work with your portfolio? How does this yeah. how does this function collectively? And once you understand that, it's much easier to understand how you can add different products. But think I think there's not a lot of solid answers. But depending on where you are yeah. and what you're doing, there's ways you can make money. And I still think if I found a good property investment tomorrow. I would still start trying to move on it if I thought it made sense. And I, I think there's variable ways that can happen, but I think it's very doable. Jonathan, I appreciate you, man. You, I think you, you summed that up extremely well. And there's this thing called the golden rule, which is that the, those who have the gold make the rules. And I think in a recession, when people are hurting, if you have access to capital, you will be able to buy assets that are distressed. And in, in the end, you'll be like, wow, that was great. I, I always... Even when we had high inflation, people are feeling like they were their money was eroding away in their savings account. I've said, okay, inflation over 30 years is that's like it's not a bad idea to sit on some cash with the mindset of where am I going to deploy it the next five years. And so I appreciate that. We'll maybe have to have you back on a jam and I bonds or I might have to have someone else yeah. on how that works because you're not the first person that has told me about that. And I definitely think our audience would love to figure yeah, out for, how for they can investment for a small that. investor. It's great returns. It's great money. It's solid. And it's, it, it's, and there's a few idiosyncrasies to it, but it's very doable. 
And I think look out and just pay attention to the markets and read the paper. That's... Those are the big things. So I appreciate you taking me. Thank you. And there's really no call to action because we can't gift you anything. We can probably can't even say thank you without getting in trouble. Any, any final words or, and I just, again, appreciate you being on. Yeah, I would say just in relation to the banking side of things, I do want to stress people, if you have less than $250,000, don't worry about your institution. Just don't sweat it. Look for a good rate. Make sure you're pricing. The average price is out there right now. People are getting paid. I think it's 37 basis points on a, a savings account. You can go in and look for ones paying above 4% right now. So a lot of sleepy money yeah. in the market. A lot of people aren't taking those basic steps to reevaluate. How's my account paying me? How's my insurance? How's my, you know, going through that yeah. checklist once a year and just saying, what things can I improve? And there, I guarantee if you're like, oh, something's dried up and there's nothing to do here. There's 10 other things on that list you could look at. So just continue improving your your personal, you know, financial position and, and things will work out. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you.